Our society wants to treat men and women the same. And while both are made in the image of God, do you know what the differences are? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Sides. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. Feminism wants to say that women can do everything that men can do. And it's pretty obvious that that's not how God made men and women. They didn't make us to do the same thing. And anybody that's not just utterly filled with confusion understands that women can do things that men can't do. They can give birth to children, which men cannot, would be one obvious example. But yet, so what feminism wants is for women to do everything that men can do and men not to do everything that women can do. But God, obviously, that he didn't design it that way. Before the fall, it wasn't that way. It was made that men and women worked together and they had complementary gifts and skills that, that helped one another. So what generally are some of those things that are the differences between how men and women think and operate? So before I answer that question with more detail, we should actually deal with where you said about in general. Because one of the issues is, is people really have a problem today with thinking about things in generalities. There's a part of it where we're so ingrained into thinking about ourselves as, as, in, as individuals or to deal with the specifics, to, know, to look at the exception of a case and to pretend like the exception makes the rule as opposed to the generalities. And so that's really key is there's a problem where we don't, we don't think in terms of types. We don't think in a way that God created a category of things that there's a role, that there's a normative way of viewing something, and that, yes, there are variations within that, but that they're really those generalities really do matter. And, and one of the key ones that you look at is if you look at, like, even how God created woman and man and how he talks about in 1 Corinthians where it says that man is not of the woman, but the woman is of the man. And man did not man, – and woman, man was not created for the woman, but the woman was created for the man. And – that's a really fundamental difference between the way that society thinks. If you're going to think of economic equality, where the two have the exact same role and the exact same features and the exact same functions, fundamentally, God said from the beginning, that is not so. I created a man, and from the man I made the woman. And I created the man, and I created the woman for the man to help the man. And that is a fundamental difference that, that society keeps banging its head against and that it can't really wrap its arms around until it actually deals with the truth of Scripture. And part of it is it needs to ignore the generalities and start to talk about specifics, and it works on talking about specifics. And then it it pretends like specifics, you know, it pretends like that you can have this example. And one example would be like the the U.S. women's soccer team lost to a bunch of 15-year-olds, I think it was, boys. Definitely high school age. High I don't school know if they age. were 15 or 17, but yeah. But in in – Part of that whole point is is there are real differences, and you can pretend like there aren't real differences. You can pretend like those real differences just somehow magically go away, but they don't because they're real. And and society just wants to pretend like they don't they don't matter, they don't exist, but they do, and they do exist in such a way that for a man or a woman to be happy, to be to be content with their life that they should recognize that there's differences because the things that drive that contentment even are different. I mean, and another part of it is you look at the U.S. women's soccer team, and it's mostly homosexuals. So like even there, even though they cannot compete with high schoolers, yet even to have to assemble that soccer team, you end up going – the, the people you're bringing onto the team are not women who are, you know, in Designed line with the way women. that God – 
that created them. And it's important to go back to that actual creation, Genesis 2, 18 through 23. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, all the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It's really important to understand that that it's a helper who's comparable to him. And because this is a picture of Christ in the church, when you say that the woman should be able to do everything that a man can do, you're basically saying that, that the church becomes God, right? That the church has to have the same power of God because the church is a comparable helper to Christ. I mean, that's why he comes and he gives his spirit, and that's why he, he you know, he— he causes law to be written on our hearts. It's sanctification. It's all these things so that we become a helper comparable to him, which doesn't mean we become a God. And so when the feminists say that men or that women have to become men effectively and have to have all the the thoughts of men and the actions of men and the abilities of men, it really is flipping the creation order on its head. We shouldn't look at this as a small thing. This is actually very, very big. It's what does it mean to be a comparable helper? Do you have to be the same to be comparable? When you, I mean, I agreed with everything you were saying there, but you were going really fast. I, I, th- I like the details of it. And I think the details are worth teasing out. I mean, you, you appealed to Ephesians 5, where it's talking about Christ and the church and the relationship there. And in that context, Paul's saying, this should give you some context for your marriage. You should understand marriage because of this. And we need to think about that. We need to... In a sense, we need to think of Ephesians 5 in a sense as higher than Genesis. And what I mean by that is God didn't, God didn't create man and woman and then after the fact think, oh, here's a thing that I can use as an example to describe the relationship that I have with my people. You know, from the beginning, he's thought of this is the relationship that I have with my people. It's, it's Christ as head, church as body, throughout the entirety of scripture, you see that metaphor show up over and over and over again. And the God who controls everything said from the beginning, I'm going to give you these other little pictures. And later on, you're going to find out what the picture is. Later on, Paul's going to tell you in plain detail, here's what it all means. But it's not something new. Paul's revealing a mystery that's been there from the beginning. So you have to start with that. You have to say that the divine orders first, and then God creates Adam and Eve as an example of that, as an exemplar for us, that then every man and woman who follows after is their own little picture of. And, I mean, and it shouldn't really need to be said, but it's it's worth saying also that the fact that the man is created as the picture of God and the, the woman is created as the picture of the church doesn't mean that the man is more important than, than the woman or anything like that. It's, it's a picture. It's not assigning value. I mean, both men and women bear the image of God, so it's not – it's not a you know a value type thing. I mean, I mean, obviously the human race can't continue without without men and women. So they're both both important, both created by God, in a, in specific roles. And the role of uh, the the wife to help the husband doesn't make her less than the husband. 
And they're both image bearers of God is what it says in Genesis, which is an important thing, right? They were both created and he created man and his image, male and female, he created them. And so both are image bearers of God, which are their primary value. And so as we talk tonight about the differences between men and women, I mean, the commonality starts with that they're both made in the image of God, and that's what really gives them value. And you can't say that man's more in the image of God than the woman, even though the woman is the picture of the church. But what we can say is that because God created her to be a picture of the church, he did give her different desires, different interests, different passions, and the same with the man. And it's even why the curses are different between the two. It's because those are real things that have real effects that that bubble through and that affect every man and every woman. While we're on creation, it's worth pointing out that Scripture refers to Christ as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And part of the doctrine that we hold from that is God did not create man and then be surprised that man fell. Christ, God was, God, the world was made. Adam was going to fall. This was part of the plan. And so there's a part of it where this is important when it comes to this picture because it's not like that God made men and women in this way and then sin entered into the world. And now with sin in the world, that cannot continue. God actually designed men and women so that when sin came, that the constraints and the structures would actually continue to operate. It's not like that that imbalance was somehow so horrible that it couldn't function with sin in the world. Because a lot of what goes on with feminism is actually to deal with, the, with men. Women are threatened by men. There's a part of where men are men are dangerous. You know what I mean? Men men have men have greater power than I mean there's there are comedians who'll talk about there's a guy who was talking about he's like he was going to catch a train and there was a woman walking and he saw her speed up and he's like, Oh, she must hear the train and so he started running and she started running and he realized she was running from him and he goes, Oh yeah, she's running from me because men do horrible things to women sometimes. And there's this part of it where I mean when you deal with feminism, when you deal with some of these things, there's an issue of they're going Men scare us, and we don't know what to do, and we don't know how to deal with that. And God is actually saying, I've actually handled that in the world. If you actually do and deal with sin the way I've told you to, this can be handled. It's not a problem that you have to solve. And I think that's really important because God made men to be what men are, and God made women to be what women are supposed to be. And we don't have to culturally come in and fix what God did. It actually needs to be carried out the way he designed it. And because it was there before the fall and continues after the fall, the difference, the, it's not inherently sinful, right. right? Right. And yes, a man attacking a woman is inherently sinful, yes, right? I absolutely. mean, there's, there's no question about that. But the difference in strength between men and women, that's part not, of the right. design, and it's not an effect of sin. And it can be part of a very healthy and positive society for that to be true and for that to be even even glory. I mean, even there is a glory to the differences between those things. There is. It is not a shameful thing. Those differences, and that's part of the issue. Is we've treated the differences as if they're shameful. We've tried to emasculate men, and that's a real problem. And just pretend like they don't exist, right? And then get upset that you put yourself in a situation where you know there is no consideration of of the of the reality of the difference, and then right. you know bad things happen, and you had not prepared for that. And it's not one directional either. I no. mean, you know, it, it's basically everything that's good about the differences between one or the other of them. The devil has chosen that as a battle line. 
Right. So you talked about emasculating men, but at the same time, we live in a culture where everybody says, hey, children are not a blessing. Motherhood is not a blessing. Find all these ways to get around. That's all the good things that God puts in for either sex, right. for either one of them. You, we live in Canaan. You know, we we live in we live in Sodom. We live in in pick your bad city. We live in Babylon. We live in Rome. Every you, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably agree with us. Yeah, men and women are different, but it's worth actually having the conversation, talking about it, because you are absolutely soaked in this soup will tell you, no, that's not the case. And you really have to fight against that. You've really got to push and say, what What are the obvious things that the culture is working so hard to say are not obvious? Right. Like, I mean, it's as simple as going to Walmart and looking at the, what the slogans that are printed on the girls' shirts, like, you know, girl power, you know, strong like a woman. Like, these are, I mean, these are trying to, you know, brainwash each other into accepting things that just that aren't true that, that women are defined by strength when that's not the way that the world was created and it's and it obviously doesn't work right i mean that's one thing is that the media is like portraying this thing as if it's real but still most nurses are women it's just reality and you look at the jobs that have a lot more connection to people and they tend to be women if it's more scientific if it's more abstract it tends to be men i mean these these differences you pretend like you can wipe them out through indoctrination but this is about the creation order it's about how god created that men and women and they can't wipe it out even though they've been trying for for decades to indoctrinate people to believe something different it just isn't true it doesn't matter still 90 plus percent of construction workers are men it doesn't matter how many times that they say it it doesn't matter how many times that they that they put on pictures of you know construction sites and half of them are women it doesn't change the reality because the indoctrination doesn't work because they still are who they were made to be even as they're the world is trying to deceive them and confuse them and so one of the basic things that that happens, and if you look at IQ tests, you look at anything, and it's very interesting because the the standard deviation, not to get too scientific, but the standard deviation of men in their skills and their abilities is much, much, much higher than it is for women. The smartest man, you know, if you take the person who's 80% smarter than all the other men and the woman that's 80% smarter than all the other women – the one who's 80% smarter among men is considerably smarter than the one who's 80% smarter than all the women. But if you take the one that's dumber than 80% of the men and the one that's dumber than 80% of the woman, the man who's dumber than 80% of the men is considerably dumber than the woman who's dumber than 80% of the women. That's what I mean by standard deviation is it's a lot broader. The spectrum of men in every skill is a lot broader, both to the positive and the negative. And it's because of what God designed them to do. God designed them to have all kinds of specific work out in the world, right? One guy goes and bees a farmer. Another guy goes and – what's that? <laughs> he goes and bees a farmer. <laughs> I, I felt I moved on the standard deviation right in that moment. It was like I, I slid to the right a couple notches. <laughs> so one man goes and becomes a farmer. Another man come, becomes a rocket scientist. Another man becomes a uh, yeah, prisoner. <laughs> that's true too that one we should leave in there that, a prisoner that would be a good example men take a whole different slew of responsibilities 
in different skills and different, you know, some people have to have a lot higher tolerance for pain in certain industries and other industries. Other ones need to be able to sit at a computer a lot longer. The, the variation in the skills for men, because they were designed to fulfill a whole bunch of different roles in the world. As opposed to women, they were designed to be keepers at home. They were designed to help a man. And every man, if he's the person who goes out and works at a farm and does you know, hard physical labor day in and day out, he still needs somebody to help keep his home, still somebody to nurture his children, still needs somebody to feed, you know, to produce food or to put food on the table, all these things that I know we go back and we look at this as being women's work, but it still is women's work today because this is the nature of what women do is a lot more women cook dinner than men. It's just reality. And we can do all the advertising we want and it doesn't change reality. And, but so women have a, a more, they generally are doing more of the same things than men have a broader range of things that they do because that's how God designed them. Because men almost always need help in the same areas, regardless of what their occupation is, regardless of where they're taking dominion in the world. And, I mean, this is a really good example of the issue that we have with generalities. I think I say this on every episode that we talk about gender. It really goes back to the point you were making. We're so indoctrinated in this stuff that it almost feels uncomfortable to say things, even though you know that they're true, because the standards have been to push against it so hard. When somebody says that certain work is women work, there's a little thing in the back of my head that goes, "You can't say that." I just did. <laughs> I, know, I know. I mean, and and let's be. I mean, and and it's and it's right. And scripture actually. I mean, scripture says that God made woman for the man. There's this part of it where God means it, and it and it's not demeaning. No. And that's a real issue. Is there's this part where, but everyone else has said that is demeaning, and so I mean, there's this part, and and this doesn't mean everything you've said doesn't mean that they're aren't men who need a wife who can help them with scientific things. And there and women can do you know I mean it doesn't mean that there aren't when people want to deal with the exceptions, they want to pretend like the but again they want to go back and go the exceptions and validate all the other things. And the truth is is and the that, woman who helps her husband with that, she still keeps at home and she still nurtures the children. And, and when and when you talk about keepers at home also, like until the seventeen or eighteen hundreds, there were no office buildings. Right. Your home was your office building. Right. So being a keeper at home doesn't mean that she's only doing laundry, cooking, etc. Right. I mean, part know, of the reason why that the reason why that happened was partly because we lost what the purpose of the home was for. The reason you can get to feminism is because we destroyed the industry of the home. We destroyed the purpose of man. Once you destroy the purpose of man, you can make woman exactly like man because if he doesn't have a purpose, you know what I mean? And so, But it doesn't work. That's right, the important thing because still you look and you can see magazines. I could see them when I was – yeah, when I was five, and I can see them now that still say, it's so unfair. Women do 80% of the housework. Right. Because everybody knows it doesn't change. We can pretend like it. We can do all this advertising, but it doesn't change. All you're doing is making women do ha- housework and go out and have Exactly, a job. because it doesn't change the other, the reality that, let's be clear, my wife is a lot more concerned about how clean the house is than I am. So is she going to do more housework? Yeah, she is. Because she, it's more important to her. And this is how God designed things. And that's a good thing. That's a great blessing 
for me that she has that passion that I don't have and I have other passions that she doesn't have and to reject that and to say <laughs> Josh was laughing over that having lived in my house that, that way we're able to walk into the house without tripping over piles of stuff it would be like a hoarder's house it could be on a TV show see Joshua knows <laughs> we've seen your office he gets it Baker you're talking about there being there being things that women do and that women care about scripture when it gives admonition to older women and to women and to how they learn in these things, it's written in the context of that as, that expectation. And so you see something like Titus 2, 3 through 5. The older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. There's this part of it where, I mean, when you look at the way the Scripture talks about women and talks about the expectations of them, it's not saying that the women be breadwinners, that the women go out and the woman, women be ones who take dominion in the world and the women who go out and, you know, and conquer. It's not saying those things. It's it's talking about the things that, that God designed women for, to to be that helper to their husband. And that can be a whole range of things, but there's a core of them here that are that are very common. It's not listing those things because those things would only be true for a couple women. If there's any women there who happen to stay at home, you know what I mean? We'll throw this out. Right. I mean, this is, this is a, a passage that's written to be descriptive of a normative view of, how, of, of, of what women are doing and how they should think about their role and how they should look at, and that the word of God may not be blasphemed. This is, I mean, that's how that's how fundamental it is. Because when women rebel against what they were made to do, the word of God is blasphemed, and that's that's the problem. And it doesn't mean that a woman who goes out and works that she's inherently blaspheming the word of God, but it means that it's it's a real risk, it's a real liability. Look at how many men have affairs with their secretaries. It's very common. I mean, it's 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 where a lot of adultery starts in Look the workplace. Look at how many secretaries have affairs with their boss. Is another way, you know, right. I mean, and I'm just you know, I mean, is, is your, is, is, but the point is that they go out there and instead of worrying about their children, instead of worrying about being a homemaker, they decide that they should go out there and have a job and have a place in the society so that they act like a man. And what they end up doing is still serving a man that's not their husband. And then frequently you have other things happen that should not happen. And so it's very easy for the word of God to be blasphemed in that situation because the nature of the woman doesn't change just because she says, I need to go out in the workplace and work. God puts centrality on on childbearing for women because God did make women with the, the particular gift, the particular talent, whatever term you want to use, of being able to bear children. And so even when it talks about how they're not allowed to speak in church, that they have to, they're not allowed to have authority over a man— you know, Paul continues and writes in 1 Timothy 2.15, Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Glory of a woman is that her children rise up and call her blessed. The glory, the the what women delight in is their children being around them like olive plants, right? Like it says in Psalms. And so we take these things and we shift it and make it so that it's, what they're supposed to glory in is having conquered the world and having conquered this business. And No, that's not where most women find joy and fulfillment. They find joy and fulfillment in fulfilling what God made them to be. And you might be able to say that the way they conquer the world is very different 
they yeah, conquered yeah, through the next generation. Sure, you, you know, know what I mean. And I think that I mean, I, so I mean, and it's I mean, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Yeah, I mean, when I you know when I met my wife, and she she told me this later. Some of this I didn't know right away when I met her. She had no intention of ever getting married. She def she she definitely wanted a career. She thought I mean, and some of this was just was fantasy on her part because she really doesn't like talking to people. But she imagined maybe going to being a politician. She, I mean, can you imagine wow. Susan being a politician? Yeah, so I mean, I just, Susan, but I mean, but what I mean is, is the cast, but it is. I mean, not to interrupt. She could have been but, in policy, but but still, <laughs> the same thing is, is that they're sold this bill of goods right. and they're pushed so hard in this. That somebody who's very shy and doesn't like to talk to people is actually thinking about being a politician. And it's yeah. never going to come to pass because it won't overrule her actual nature, but it makes her fantasies, her dreams to be right. something that are just out of line with what would actually make her happy because she would be miserable as a politician. Yeah. But yet the the effort to say you have to be this if you're actually a fulfilled woman, you have to have a job, you have to go out and reject your family, you have to go – all these things that the Bible says, this is the sign of a woman being blessed. Right. I mean, and, and when I fell for her, truth be told, I mean, and I fell for her, it was one of these things where I was, I didn't push. I mean, honestly, we started dating. I didn't push and say, We're good, you got to have children. She, she started coming to church with me. She started doing things. She started listening, started coming. And one day she looked at me and she went, you know, if we get married, we should probably have as many kids as God gives us. And I was like, Okay. And I was already, I was on board with that idea. I mean, but I remember her saying that. We got married. Doctor told us we couldn't have kids. Three years later, we finally, we have a kid. We start having kids. Every kid we had, she goes, you know, I think we're done. I think we're done. We have another kid. We have our ninth kid. She looks at me and she goes, if this is the last kid we have, I'm going to be really, really, really sad. And this is, and, and there's this part of it where what I mean by this is, I watched this transformation of someone who went into marriage going, I don't want to be married. I don't want to have kids to a woman who had 10 children. And I'm never like pushing this on her, telling her she, I mean, I don't, we never had a conversation where I looked at her and said, you got to go and do X. You got to have, I mean, never. And at the end of the 10th kid, I mean, ninth and 10th kid, she looks at me and she's like, you can tell that for her, her fulfillment was I've had these children. I've brought these children into the world. And that, I mean, and, and so, I mean, this isn't, this isn't like something that it's like, like I know it, the anecdote doesn't establish anything. The specific doesn't establish it, but it is also, it's very real the way it works itself out in the world, the way it acts that you can have someone who's adamantly opposed to something and yet they find their fulfillment in what they said they would never do and what they said, but because in the end, this is how God made women. Yeah, because, I mean, the anecdotes are important because we have so much, you know, counter-programming being pushed on us constantly. You know, women in politics saying, wow, look at what, how you know, how great this is, that they're able to do this. But we don't know, like, how upset are they that they aren't seeing their kids every day? How, how upset are they about, you know, the light, you know, traveling around the country, running for president? Is that what they really want to be doing? It should, is it what they should be wanting to doing, be doing? And, and so, you know, that's, that's what the, you know, the world is pushing out there. And, you know, the, yeah. the other narrative isn't acceptable. And I mean, you look at somebody like Sarah Palin who ran for vice president, you look at the damage that it did to her family. And really, is that, was that worth it? And for a woman, most women, and probably even for Sarah Palin, the answer is no. It's not worth it that my daughter had a child out of wedlock because I was never home for her. 
I mean, this isn't worth it. But yet, this is what the society is saying. You need to go be a man. Well, it has a real cost on the family. And it real it has a real cost on on that woman's future and her happiness when she's when she's 60 and 70. I mean, it really makes a difference. And people don't look at that. When they're 60 and 70, they're not going to be looking back at their career going, oh, I just my career was just so wonderful. That's not what God says he blesses a faithful woman with. And it is different for men, right? Genesis 1, 27, 28 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, the wife is a helper to her husband, but the husband has the responsibility to take dominion. And if the person who's taking dominion over the fish of the sea versus the birds of the air versus the cattle of the field, those are very different skills. Those are very different things that they're working at, different things that they have to understand, different things that they're doing. And so for the men, they have, again, that, that idea of the standard deviation of like IQ and of so many, so many things that you can measure in terms of abilities is so much higher for men because – because they have all these different roles, because to take dominion takes a whole bunch of different responsibilities. And we read from Genesis 2 already, but, but Genesis 2 is the first act of man taking dominion. When God brings the animals to mm-hmm. Adam to name, that n- naming, I mean, we've talked about this, the, the act of naming something is establishing authority over it. Right. And the fact that God is bringing them to him with that is God saying, this is your job. And then the fact that the last thing that Adam names is his wife. Eve is also saying it's, it's reestablishing that authority structure that's there. But but even right there, the fact that Adam gets to name all the animals is this being carried out right in the next chapter. And we realize that it's getting carried out before Eve's on before Eve's in place, which tells you a couple things. It tells you number one that the responsibility for carrying this out lies primarily with the man, but also He's insufficient to do it all by himself. I mean, one of the basic ways to take dominion is by by fighting and by being a warrior. And if you look throughout all of, you know, when they would do the censuses of the of the Israel, it was always you know twenty and older, but males because males are much more likely to fight. And when we think about fighting. It's not just physical combat. Right. The way that you move most fields forward is through fighting. Right. If you want to get somebody to adopt a new idea, you have to fight for that idea. You have to go to war for that idea. And this is true in in like every field because the status quo, you actually have to use force against it to move the status quo and to take dominion. That's what you have to do. So men have – have much more of a warrior instinct than women ever have. And the way they fight is very different as well. But but you just look at it and so men that's this is going to be a very basic difference between men and women as men tend to fight. And it's something that men do from the time they're little boys is something that they practice at. And this is this is kind of what I was referring back to the issue of the world if you don't get this difference, you see men as a fundamental problem. Because men do like conflict. There's a, you know, I mean, and men and men actually seek out areas where they can be in conflict. You know what I mean? And 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 there's this part where people go, "That's bad, that's wrong." 
I mean, and you know what I mean? And, and if you, if, I, if, <laughs> if everything becomes the inside of a house, you know, mom is always like, stop fighting in the house, stop fighting in the house. I mean, this is real. I mean, if everything is the inside of a house, there's no place for that conflict. There right. becomes no place for what men do. And there is, and so we've, we've gotten this problem of why is it, how is it good to be in conflict? And a lot of people really, they don't even see the value. And there's a real fundamental problem with that as well. And because women think about conflict very differently than men do. Men think about conflict and it's, I lost the battle. Time to move on. You fight another battle. Because this is, this is how you think about it. And when you think about it in business, this is true, right? You go and you say, this is a better idea than this guy's idea. And you fight for your idea and you lose. And they, check, they pick the other idea. Well, the next day you go and fight for your next idea. Right. Women tend to fight very differently because they'll hold grudges. Well, men just go, I lost that battle. Time to move on to the next battle. Women tend to hold grudges because they're made different. They're not made for that type of battle where you have a battle, you lose a battle, and you go on and fight the next battle. And because they're not made for that, they tend to hold grudges much longer than men do. If throughout this episode you find yourself going, I know men who hold grudges. Try That's to remember about generalities. <laughs> yes. Try to remember the difference between generalities and specifics because that's going to be your instinct is throughout the entire episode. Everything you've been told is going to war against these ideas. And some of these ideas need to be torn down. Sounds like conflict language there. <laughs> but I mean, the fact that we're talking about this and then if you step back from our episode for a moment and just think about the popular culture that you live in, everything about that popular culture is somehow or other the culture trying to deal with a particular form of rebellion against this idea, either saying conflict's bad and therefore wouldn't it be better if women ruled the world than men, right. or to say, no, women can fight just like men and look at all of your look at all of your warrior women in, in popular culture that are that can fight just as hard as a man and you know, the little wasp of a woman who can hit the big tough guy and knock him down. You know, it just it's just a joke in reality. Well, but it, but it's more than a joke. It's an expression no, of No, I know. It's it's an it's an expression of a fantasy that they're trying to make people believe is reality. The reality is if if I mean I weigh well over 200 pounds, if a 100-pound woman hits me, it doesn't hurt. If I hit them, it hurts. And they can pretend all they want. They can use all the leverage they want. They can spin around, they can kick, they I'm sorry, it doesn't work. It's just that simple. But yet they want to do this fantasy and they want to put it in comics and they want to put it in movies and they want to they want to pretend and it's purely pretend. So much so they're willing to kill women to keep up the pretense, right? Because they'll put women in combat unit with men where the men have to carry their their knapsack because they can't carry the weight that a man can carry. So the whole unit moves forward so that you can keep this pretense that women are as strong as men because they aren't. It's just that simple. They can't carry the gun and they can't carry the ammo and they can't carry their food supplies. They can't carry everything and run into combat. So the men have to carry it for them, but they get the pictures that they show and they say men are just as, or women are just as powerful and it's just as good a warriors as men. And it's just totally false. But the movies have pushed it so hard. The comic books have pushed it. Everybody's pushing it. It's just pure fantasy. Well, because, I mean, the, the physical standards are different for the military, for men versus women. It's just not. But not when they go into combat. That's the problem. The gun weighs the same. 
And so they they make the physical standards different, but the standards in the battlefield aren't different. And I don't know how which which direction the causality goes, but at this point, the movies are selling something that we're very happy to buy. You know, we we would like that to be true culturally speaking. So we're happy for them to keep feeding that to us, even though it doesn't work. Even though the realities of the world that God made are going to cause people to die because of that kind of a fiction. And you know, we can we can look at you know elements of current culture, um, and it would also be possible to latch on to them as you know, just because they are flowing from this natural creation order, therefore they're right. Like you have men being, you know, a lot more interested in sports than women. And obviously sports have that conflict element to them, but it doesn't mean that, well, it's great that men are obsessed with sports. This is great. This is just living out your created order. Well, you know, that's, that's not exactly right as well. And it doesn't mean that you go back to like, you know, 1800s. What were the standards for men and women in the 1800s? And we just need to go back to that. You know, I think they probably there's there's things in modern society. There's things in the 1800s that were you know living out the way that God made us. But we we can't just go back to a time where they had it right, and that's the standards. We just need to adopt those standards. You know, we we need to look at what Scripture says, look at the reality of the world we're in, and and and, and obey as we're as we're called to. And I mean, I think that's really important to think about because when you go back to the the 1800s, a lot of times women were portrayed as these frail creatures that's not how it is either right i mean that's they were way off the other way now we're going men you know women are can you know beat up a man as easily as a man can beat up a woman which is total fantasy but yet at the same time this idea that that you know so much of the treatment of women is that they were these frail creatures now they give birth to children that takes a lot of work that's a lot of labor that takes a lot of suffering and pain there's real work that it done, you know, it talk, the pilgrims are, there's a statue to the pilgrim women's that says, you know, the sturdy virtue of these women. It, and there's this picture of strength there because the fact that they're physically weaker does not mean that they're not strong. But yet in the 1800s, a lot of times the portrayal was that they're this weak little thing that just needs to be in a cage and protected. That's not right either because you can get off on either side. You see that in like, I mean, in Deuteronomy, the you know, the woman whose foot will not even touch the ground. Well, I mean, you know, so I mean, that's existed throughout every aspect of culture where there was the woman who was so as viewed as so delicate that she should never do anything. And then there was the woman who was out working beside her husband in the field. And so, I mean, like Josh was saying, the answer is, is follow after God's word and actually go back to God's word. And those things get sorted out in detail as you obey him. Right. I mean, that's right. that's how you figure it out. Another difference that I've seen that I can't necessarily point to Scripture for this, but it's it's very obvious having lived a long time, is men and women have different perspectives and different time frames that they're concerned about. And, I mean, they've done – I remember psychology classes that I took that talked about this too. A woman gets more upset if if she doesn't know where the next meal is coming from, and a man gets more upset if he loses his job. Because he's going, how will I provide for meals three months from now? And she's going, my children need to eat. And so there's a different in perspective that God has given between men and women. And the woman's perspective is much more short-term, and the man's is much longer. And it's actually a huge blessing that there is that difference. To pretend like that difference is not a blessing is insane. Because the reality is there's lots of things that men would just skip over and not do because they go, ah, not that big of a deal. 
that are what actually causes things to propel along. And if you're not pro- planting a crop for to be harvested at the end of the season, you all die too. So both of them are really important. And so this is one of the ways that these differences end up being a huge blessing to each other. And, and without that difference, it causes real problems. You can say that. I mean, the military certainly grasped that when they built set up their units where they set up where, this, I mean, you'll hear them talk, you can read them talking about this in some of the language of the sergeant was set up to be the mother. And the sergeant was concerned with the day-to-day, how do you deal with things? And the lieutenant's goal was to be the dad. And the lieutenant's goal was to look at strategic things and long-term things. I mean, they lifted it straight from the family. And it wasn't like they it wasn't like they were scratching their head going, where did we get this from? Everybody understood this. And it's exactly the same point that you're making is the the woman thinks and she has different priorities. It's kind of like when you were referring to your wife cares more about the house and its cleanliness. There is just a different focus. Right. And and that focus is a is an intrinsic is an intrinsic aspect of, of what God has made women to care about. A man is much more likely to look at something and say, Well, if I clean that now, it'll be dirty again in a week, so why bother? And women don't think that way. And it's true. <laughs> There's a lot of men that look and go, eh, it's gonna just be right back where it was. So how much does it matter? Right. And, and and there are times where the man's like, it matters a great deal right now. Right. You know, I mean, there is a specific thing for which it matters. And there's another. But after that, it ceases to matter for potentially months. And then eventually you can't open the door. My wife is talking to me about housekeeping. She said, you know, I've come to peace with housekeeping is just a consumable art form. And that's just right. how she thinks about it. It's like, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to have to do it again. But it's an art form, you know, it ranks up there with painting and music and. Right. And you can see a different skill level in different homes and, you know, <laughs> in my office versus the rest of my house to use Joshua's point. Um. It's not your spiritual gifting there. <laughs> the issue is when people think about the difference between men and women too, when you start dealing with some of these things is they make generalities that aren't necessarily the exact right generality. They'll say women are better at multitasking than men are. It starts to be they're different at multitasking in specific in specific areas in specific way. You know what I mean? It's I mean like uh, people who work in the kitchen, like chefs. You're a professional chef. You're really good at multitasking in right. in that area. You have to be for that particular job. But women in a, there's a domestic sense that requires a certain it requires a certain skill at multitasking. And so it people like I said they're the generalities. The differences are more than people want to make them out to be. That's part of the issue as well. Even the, even where you go to the the strictest person who holds to the tightest view of scriptural roles, there's a huge amount of diversity within how those roles get carried out and even how they're done. And you know when you get down to the specifics, and I think the problem is is we haven't thought about them for a long time. We've spent a long time thinking about the other. And we've spent a whole long time of making the other seem like making what God said as seeming like one horrible thing. You know what I mean? We've spent a huge amount of time just pigeonholing the role that God designed and saying it's just this. And you want us to go back and be just this. And that's all it is. And then all the diversity is out in what men, you know what I mean? And there's just a real issue in the sense of, We've spent a long time thinking about the one and glorifying the one, and we've spent a really long time denigrating and minimizing the other. And 
that's part of the issue. And because we're denigrating it for women, right? A woman who goes, like my wife is very frustrated when there's dirty dishes in the sink. Like that just really bothers her. Or where the floor is dirty, that really bothers her. Well, if all you're saying is what's important is work outside, then all of a sudden she has to live with those things all the time and they will bother her. And they don't bother me, (laughs) surprisingly. Right. They don't bother me. But if you're exalting the one and saying this is all that's important is that job, you end up putting women in a position where if they're going to meet that standard, they have to be unhappy a lot of the time. Because they're going, I don't want to live in a pig pen. I don't want to live in a place where there's dirty dishes sitting in the sink. I don't want to live in a place where there's crumbs on the floor. But yet, the job's so important. And so when we ignore the differences, what we end up doing is putting women in particular, and feminists do this a lot, they put women in a position where they're very uncomfortable and they don't find the things that actually give them pleasure because they're fighting against the created order. Or or has this uh, another way to put it? God gives curses to men and women, and they're different curses. And the curses that God gives to men are that they will have to get bred by the sweat of their brow, which is, you know, broadly speaking, is they're going to have hard work to do, and they're going to have many obstacles that they have to face to do that work. And it's sort of unceasing. And it's the woman who thinks that going out into the workforce is going to be fulfilling is saying, I'll take on those curses that God has given to men. And that's going to be tough. That's going to be really hard because God did not make her to bear those particular curses in that particular way. She has other curses that she can't just drop off and and carry those curses too. The way you minimize those sort of things is is men, if you go out and do and take dominion and do things, it tends to make messes. So that's my excuse. So you keep your husband from doing those sort of things. I mean, you know what I mean? And that is that is one of the ways you keep from being frustrated all the time is, you, I mean, and this is like, we see this with our kids sometimes. There's times where the answer to like your children is don't do anything. You know what I mean? Like just sit, and, just sit down somewhere and don't do anything because every time you do something, it makes a mess. As opposed- it's more like, please, for five minutes, don't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, this is, this is part of the tension. And so there's this, and so like I said, I mean, for you, you know that your wife cares about those things, and sometimes you end up having someone make sure that those things happen because you might need her to do something. You know what I mean? Right. And and this is how you trade off as opposed to if you put a woman in that position where she has to work and she has to have a clean home, one of the ways to make sure she keeps that clean home is to, you know, this is why men frequently play video games. Video games aren't messy. It lets men go and be feel something and – Men like to trade off and not have the responsibility. They like to shirk their duty, and they're not making a mess anywhere because video games are neat at least. At least they're tidy. You know what I mean? The worst thing is they're constrained to a little area. I mean, these are the, these are the societal trade-offs you end up making, which are just horrible. The, the biggest one you, you make is you decide let's not have children right. because they are fundamentally messy. Yes. And, yeah, and they're a lot of work, and they're a lot – of work that if you're saying that you want to put all your energy into work outside the house, then you pretty much have to not have children or you have to pay somebody to take care of those children for you because yeah, they constantly make a mess. And there is an attitude of service that ends up that women tend to have far more than men, even after the fall, because they were created to be a a helper. And so, you know, in Luke 10, 39 and 40, it says, and she had a, this is when Jesus comes to Mary and Martha 
And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his words. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. Because it is in women, there is this sense of service. And this is one of the reasons that you get this, this you know, 80% of the housework is done even though they both have jobs and maybe even the woman is making more money than the man. The man doesn't have this sense of service in the same way because he wasn't created the same way. And so because of that, women, you look, and women are much more likely, and this goes back to the curse too, that, that men tend to be lazy and they tend to, to not do work because they don't want to have the sweat of their brow. And women tend to be much quicker to serve and to do work. And so this ends up when you put men and women in the same environment saying to do the same work, there's certain work that the women do all the time anyway. And, you know, I've seen this in various businesses and stuff, is that when you hire women, women will choose to serve the other people. And it becomes very unfair to the women because you put them in that situation where their natural tendency is to be servants. Whereas in, whereas in the home, God has actually said that the point of the man is to love his wife as himself and as his own body. Whereas you go into the workplace, that is definitely not the contract of the workplace whatsoever. And so the, the woman comes and and serves, you know, helps with, you know, we'll have a birthday party for you. And we'll, you know, these, this is what I mean by the service. Right. You know, they, they make the coffee because they go, oh, the coffee maker's empty. The man goes, oh, there's no coffee and walks away. You know, it's just a difference in attitude, which becomes very unfair because then the man goes back and does the thing that he gets paid for. And the woman goes, oh, there's no coffee. I should make coffee. Well, that means that she does less of the work. So you're, it's like we put women at constant disadvantages by exalting the work of men over women. Yeah. I mean, some of this goes back to what you talked about with fighting. The next one of the other things is you talked about just kind of in fighting and how, you know, there's a pecking order among men that has to do with, you know, they fight to establish a pecking order. And there's, there's a pecking order within women, but it's established in a different way. And it's established and kept in different ways. I mean, you can, I mean, We've talked about Jordan Peterson's out there, and he's making arguments that are pretty compelling at times that that the about true things that the church should know and the church doesn't. I mean, there's one in particular where he's talking about how that he goes in the workplace. He goes, women. He goes, the way women tend to fight is by tarnishing each other's reputation. It's by using words. It's by doing these things. He goes, whereas men tend to have conflicts and they tend to try to win over one another in certain ways. They try to act, they'll actually sometimes have pseudo-physical conflicts up to even physical conflicts. And he's like, those are very, very, very different things, and it creates a very different environment in the workforce for how they actually try to establish things. And men men try to lead. They try to lead in very, very different ways than women tend to lead. And for even where they're, where they're going and what they're willing to do and what they want to accomplish, they tend to be very different things. Women try to very often lead towards stability, and men actually lead frequently towards advancing into a very like, – fighting to move into some new area, to take over some new area, to say this is where we're going to go and conquer. And those are very, very different things. And when you mix the environment so that you have these men and women working together where they're trying to establish pecking order effectively with very two very different means, it creates a very confused environment. In a lot of ways, they sort out that it becomes more of a, a feminine environment or it becomes more of a masculine environment. And and that doesn't work either, right? Because if you're saying that you need to have men and women there, 
you're giving a, an inherent advantage to one or the other, and that just creates a mess, and it creates a lot of conflict. And it creates, I mean, I remember, a, you know, that that at a place that I worked, that there was a, a woman that worked for me when I was a team leader, and, and she would cry like every other day because she just couldn't handle the the stress of the environment and the conflict that was there because it was – it was a more, much more manly style conflict, right? Somebody actually even tried to assault me once at that place. So it even became physical. So like you said, it's, it was very different. And to put a woman in that environment became very, I mean, very hard for her. I mean, and, and some of these things even roll over into the home in real ways. I mean, I have sons and they want to wrestle with each other. And my wife would prefer that they never wrestled in one way. I mean, they're, I mean, and she doesn't want them, but I mean, Especially in the house. And I can understand certain, but I mean, there's a part where sometimes her preference would be no wrestling. And I'm like, they have to be able to, they have to be able to wrestle. They have to be able to, there's some of these things where it, it's necessary. It's, it's how they learn to deal with, with other men because they're going to leave the house and there's going to be men who've wrestled and there's going to be, you know, and. There's this and part some of, of the physical strategy becomes intellectual strategy and everything else. It does. And so, and. Yeah, it's and you really have to deal with those things. And like I said, you can have rules of not wrestling in the house or that, right. that, that take it outside. That was right. our rule. But take I mean, you know, <laughs> but I mean, but in the end, I mean, I have six daughters. They've been physical with each other. Maybe you know, when girls get physical with each other, they're really mad. If right. they get physical with each other, they are incredibly mad at each other. And it is whereas. Boys can be physical and be laughing two minutes later, can go back to being physical, can go back to laughing. I'm not saying they don't ever get mad at each other, but I'm just but saying. they can be mad at each other and still be laughing two minutes later. Right. Which is the big difference between, one of the big differences between boys and girls. They can be happy with each other and say, let's fight. Yes. Right. But even if they're mad with each other, once they fight, they usually stop being mad at each other. Right. That's not true when girls fight. Frequently. Right. That, no, is I mean, like I said, and they, uh, I mean, yeah, daughters. I mean, first of all, by nature, they don't, they don't just start wrestling, and when they do get in fights, it, if it gets physical, it has reached a really horrible place, and yeah, any, and so yeah, anybody who's out there saying that they're the same in every way, there, I'm sorry, that is just, it's just not true. And again, as we talk about these things, we want to point out that that when we ignore these things, we ignore the glory of how God created the world. Because he didn't create the world like randomly. He created the world so that we would see his image. And male and female, we would see his image. And we would see that the differences are part of the glory of how God created the world. And when we ignore that, what we're doing is ignoring real aspects of how God designed things. And and that's really unfair to God when we do this and we when we try to say that men and women are the same. What we're really doing is limiting God to make God, even even limiting him by saying he's just a man, because he is also nurturing, and he also does care. He's the one that gives us every breath that we take. He's not just looking at the future. He's looking at the present. And so when it says that, you know, God made man male and female, he made them, or made a man in his image male and female, he made them. I mean, that's a real thing that's showing the the full glory of God. And when we start to say, well, womanhood is bad, we're actually stealing glory from God and stealing glory from how he designed his creation. You should actually say, can you say a little bit more about when you said that the wrestling becomes intellectual? I mean, because there's this part of it where 
people don't realize why. I mean, it's not just man's nature and, oh, well, it's man's nature that they wrestle. But God actually made it, and God actually designed it, and God actually desires that man be that, have that type of conflict. Not that men are always physically wrestling with each other and physically assaulting one another, but that that type of conflict exists, that it's that there's a goodness to it. Right, and, and in that physical wrestling, when you have two little boys that are physically wrestling, first of all, what you they they're looking for weaknesses of each other. They're looking for the spots that they can apply pressure that will cause them to have success where they wouldn't have success before. All these things that are physical things that take place when they're wrestling, these are things that later you do the same exact strategic things as you did when it was physical, but now it becomes intellectual. You look for the weakness in the person's argument. You look for the point where you can you can capture them so they can't get out of that hold because you go, well, if I can create this argument here that binds them, then I've got them in a I've got them like I've, I have my arm around their throat and they're not going to be able to do anything. And, and there is real the intellectual training of doing that. That does translate to the intellectual arguments where you're not actually like grabbing, you know, putting somebody in a neck hold. But what you are doing is you're intellectually doing that. I've done that many times. but You've seen me do that in business before right. where the person's like, I can't move. And it's like, exactly. That's what I was trying to do. Get it so you had no choice. And I think the other part of it is, is it also ties together the intellectual and the physical. Because when you actually get into reality, very few things are purely intellectual. And what I mean by that is right. that even it doesn't always become physical like me putting my hand on you. But your resources and the things that you actually have, your stamina, your, I mean, you, I mean, when you go to do something, you look at somebody and go, can you actually do it? And there's this part of it where when you look, when you fight with somebody else, there's a part of it going, can you keep up with me? Can you, you know, I mean, can you go the distance? And those sort of things start to become, there's a reality to that, that you don't have to actually put your hand on them to deal with, but you, it's real. And there's a one-on-one thing, but it's not just one-on-one. It also expands, right? Because you look at what's the difference between a, a private and a and a lieutenant and a major, and you know, go up to a general. Well, each one, the the private is physically dealing with it. Now we don't do it anymore with swords, and we don't do it with wrestling, but we do it with guns. But but there is still this physicality to it. But those same lessons that you learn on that one-to-one combat. They drive up through the ranks till you get to the general and you're saying, okay, I'm moving these 500,000 people, but you're still trying to put the, the enemy in a neck hold, so to speak, right? right. You're still trying to with do the same things. thing with physical things that bubble down through all these layers. And so the training of that wrestling as a little boy, it's not like it doesn't have real lessons up when you're a general that's leading a half-million-person army. It does. Right. The intellectual is not divorcing from the physical. It's actually understanding the physical well enough to use it without feeling it, without touching it. Yeah, right. I mean, and you, you could draw other other lessons, too, like, you know, bluster versus actually being able to back up right. the posture you're, you're, you're putting yourself in. You know, you have accepting that you lose sometimes right. and, and recognizing your limits and not going, not, not going after people that you're going to get beat up or whatever. Right. And, you know, so, I mean, there's a lot, lot of different areas where, you know, that, that there, there's big parallels. Including recognizing your own weaknesses. So you deal with your own weaknesses. I mean, that's a, that's a classic one that you learn with wrestling is that, 
you know what? My legs aren't strong enough to, he can grab me with his legs and do a scissor hold on me and I can't get out, but I do the same on him and he can get out. I better strengthen my legs. And that, you know, then before you go into the battle to, to argue about the, the numbers of what a project's going to cost, you strengthen that. You say, this is my weakness, so I should be strong in this before I go in. And so there's all kinds of parallels there that, that actually you learn how to deal with weaknesses. You learn how to exploit your strengths. You learn how to exploit their weaknesses. These are all things that translate into all kinds of things throughout your life. But they don't translate the same for women because women are focused on very different things. They're not focused on winning that battle. They're focused on bringing peace, which is a good thing. That's not a bad thing. But they're not focused on taking dominion and moving things forward, which takes a lot more conflict. But when you put a woman in that was raised as a, a young girl and you put her in that place with conflict, I mean, it's like the woman I was talking about where she was crying every other day. She just couldn't handle it. It just was incredibly unfair to put her into that position. One of the things that, that God made women to do that I find really remarkable because of my lack of ability to do it is to deal with repetitive things. A woman can change a diaper you know, five times a day for 20 years, and men can't deal with repetitive tasks that well. Most men can't nearly at the same level that women can. Women, most of the work that women does tend to be very repetitive. And most men aren't that good at repetitive things. And there's a problem where I think culturally we think of this as being as being dumb, dumb work. I mean, we think, you know what I mean? There's this part of it where we think of it as being, that's low-level work. But the truth is, is you can't pay somebody to care Right. And, I mean, and that's really the line, and, and that's really the issue, is you can't pay somebody to care in the way that you need to when you're actually talking about a home. With a, you know what I mean? And this, right, and this which is creates what we real to... weaknesses in the homes in America in particular that show why our next generation is in such bad shape is because we've decided you could pay somebody to care because it's more important for somebody – to go out into the workforce. So they should pay somebody to go out into the workforce to raise somebody else's children rather than you raising your own children. But that person that came in didn't care and the children know that they didn't care. And the testimony of the parents is that their job's a lot more important than the children, especially of their mother. And so all of a sudden you create a society that's just really has all the problems that our society has. I mean, that's what we're producing. And, and, and what, I'm, what I'm, I mean, as I'm saying this, I'm realizing the distinction that we really need to draw, and we've been saying this throughout, is that the workforce is completely different than the home. Go out into the workforce, it's all about how much you value that thing. And the person who's saying they want to do the repetitive thing, they can't value, they can only value that thing so much. They can use typically only, and, and even then you can only pay someone so much to care so much. Whereas the home is a very different thing in the sense of the way you care about it and the way that you desire to do it. And what, in the end, I mean, you don't, this is why we try to, you'll try to create businesses and they'll go, this, we're a family here. But the truth is, is when they're done paying you, they're done paying you and you're not a family. Whereas in a family and in a home, it's very, very, you know what I mean? It's, I mean, you go home and they take care of you when you're sick. You don't go into the office so they'll take care of you when you're sick. I mean, we understand, right. and, and we've really caused some real problems here because of the way we've tried to think about the family and the workforce, and we've tried to make them the same things, but they're not. 
Jesus talks about this when he's talking about somebody who's a real shepherd of the sheep versus somebody who's a hireling. Somebody right. who's doing it for wages versus the guy who actually is invested in the sheep. And that's basically the distinction you're drawing. The daycare worker is a hireling. They're good for something, but there's limits. And when the pressure comes, they're not willing to go beyond, oh, I'm not paid to do that. Whereas a mother isn't. A mother shouldn't be thinking in those kinds of terms. If she did, it would be perverse. And we all understand that. Right. Because we're not really talking about marriage here. But in the end, you become one flesh. And that's very different than the workforce. You don't become one flesh with your company. And when I talk about repetition, there are jobs that are very repetitive, right? Sure. Working on a, a manufacturing line. But first of all, this partly this goes back to to the standard deviation being greater than men. For men, that there are men that are very intellectually lower, right? The the lowest ten percent of men are much dumber than the lowest ten percent of women. It's just true. And but they can also be a lot physically stronger. They can have other gifts. And so they can stand there and they can do that repetitive work. But even then, to get them to maintain interest, what do they have to do? They have to start measuring and they have to start saying, you only produced 100 cars as opposed to this other line post 120 cars. You need to get Right, and so even in the repetitive work for men to remain engaged to in it, it's not that men can't do repetitive work and be engaged in it because God made a wide diversity of men, and some are engaged in it, and that's what they can be engaged in. But you still put conquest in it. You still put competition in it. But it's not like how many diapers can you change in a day? No, you change the number of diapers that your child needs to have changed. That's how many you should change in a day. Well, you don't you say, can I do a little bit of X lax with everything? <laughs> this is what the world would be like if you ended up. <laughs> right, if men ran the home. Um, but, but, and so even in the repetitive work, repetitive work for men is much different than repetitive work for women. And again, this, this is a glorious thing. This is important. Because so much of what needs to happen in the world, you need to have food prepared. And yeah, two, three times a day, you need to have food prepared. And if you don't have food prepared two or three times a day, the world (laughs) gets into problems pretty quick. And so there's so many repetitive things that need to happen. And so, and that's, man needs help. And so God made a helper that was comparable to him that that doesn't get frustrated with, I need to cook again, but I just did this yesterday, as opposed to men would be much more likely to do that. And that's even like if you go to a a lower-end restaurant, the menu never changes, but they all use teenagers. And if you go to somebody that's more skilled, like a chef, their menu changes all the time because they don't want to just do repetitive work because cooking doesn't need to be repetitive. But when you start to do it at a home, most homes, they have a set course of meals that they go through. And I'm not saying Tuesday is spaghetti day. I don't mean that. But, I mean, it's not like there's a whole lot of experimentation and stuff because there's other things going on, and that's not the priority. And so women are just so much better at that kind of work than men are and being satisfied with that kind of work. There's a little thing in the back of my head that just goes, you can't say stuff like that. And the other part goes, it's true. <laughs> And it's glorious. It's part of the glory of God. That's what's frustrating to me is that we want to deny it. But by denying it, we're stealing the glory of God's design and his creation. And it is stealing it. And it's, and it's stealing joy from women because it's saying that those things that really are important to them don't matter. Well, that's really unfair because they do matter. 
they matter really in huge amounts. I mean that that what it was homemaking or is a consumable consumable bar form. form. Yeah. I mean that's that's an important concept, and that 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 woman who's putting something together so that there's a nice meal on the table that's going to be consumed and it's not going to look nice five minutes after her husband and children come, she can still look at that meal and take real satisfaction out of it, that she prepared it and she put it there. And, and if you start to say that that repetition is bad, then you're stealing that joy from her, and it's very unfair to women. I mean, when, when you were talking about the food and certain things, I mean, there's a book called The Taste of America, and it's got a lot of... <laughs> They have a real axe to grind about certain things and about American culinary history. But there's a part where they're talking about in early America. They talked about that the early American culture was one of diverse, massively diverse foodstuffs. And they said part of it was in the home you had somebody who basically was – there was a you know there was a stove. There was a central place. The fire was going to be going all day. There were certain foods that had to be worked on. They were doing lots of lots of different things throughout the day. But when you're doing that, there's lots of work that can be done that it doesn't take a huge amount of time at any given moment, but you can achieve a lot over the entire course of that day. And when you're trying to use everything you have, so they were making sauces and jellies and jams and preserves and, and, and gravies. And I mean, all these things were constantly being made from things and then either stored or used. And they said, I mean, they said it was amazing the thing. They said America was very quickly an exporter of new and unique types of foods. I mean, like for Washington, like the hams that Washington made were shipped to Europe. You know what I mean? Where Europe was kind of known as kind of like, you know, Italy's kind of big on, you know, we kind of have the corner on these sort of cured meats and stuff. I mean, America very quickly became an innovator in this space. And part of this was because of the industry of the home was because if you're working there, if you're already going to be working, we just have this horrible view of what is possible and what is capable. I actually look at John. I mean, the stuff that comes out of Jonathan's house is amazing at times. I mean, Megan, the things that she does and uses and stuff. I mean, it, it it reminds me of that sort of thing. And I think this is this could be much more of the norm if this was embraced and if we were actually thinking about our homes in different ways. You know, on this subject, we'd almost take it the complete other direction where, you know, a lot of times men would be fine having pizza five days a week. <laughs> And, and it's and What's it's wrong the, with that? <laughs> well, and, but it's the women who are actually saying like, you know, or even like, I want to try new recipes and things like, well, we have like five good recipes. Why don't you stick to those? But, you know, so, I mean, that's another difference where it almost is kind of the opposite of the repetition. But, you know, right. in that everyday type thing, though, the women are looking for ways to, to do it better. But women are why we have nice things. I mean, some, I mean, and there's a, there's a legitimate argument for that. Hey, I mean... Go back to Genesis. It's not good for a man to be alone. If my wife is traveling or something, I may just, I may just miss a meal because oh, I've got other stuff to do. You know, I have these projects I'm working on. I'm working late. I, you know, dinner's not that important all of a sudden, and and that kind of thing happens. And it, but it's just because I have, I think about things differently. Right. When I cook, it's either a competition with myself to see how fast I can make this particular meal. I, mean, I like to cook, but it's either how fast can I make it or it's a top chef experiment. I'm going to open the fridge. I'm going to pull out the first five things and let's see what we can make out of this. And I'll put a lot of energy into it. But if you told me I had to do it again and again and again and again, I'd pull my hair out. You know what I mean? Right. And I love right. it and it's relaxing and I don't want to have to do it every day. And I would die if I did. 
I remember a time when my wife went on a woman's retreat and you know she got back at four in the afternoon and said, so what they had what the children have for lunch? And I'm like, lunch? We haven't gotten around to that yet. Because <laughs> I don't just do it for myself. I also do it for my children. That happened this morning. You know, I was watching the kids and we didn't get breakfast and as timely as we should have. <laughs> and it's just a, a difference in attitude. It's a difference in in focus. It's a difference that God made that that man has real limitations and we need a we need women to to counteract our limitations and not look down on how they're counteracting our limitations. Instead, we should be rejoicing that they counteract our limitations. Right. Because we are not an infinite God. God is infinite and we're not. We're all finite. We all have real lacks and real limits to how much we can focus on on once. And so God makes a man or woman come together because they do focus on different things. And that's a good thing. Another big difference between men and women is security versus risk-taking, their view of those two things. I mean, there are obviously women who will take risks in certain areas, but women in general are focused on security. And men are much more focused on taking risks. And if you ask which one they would trade for in a certain, I mean, certain circumstances, men, I mean, and there's a part of it where women find their security in men and men obtain that security for women by taking risks. And it's, and if you, if you don't take risks, you die. And there's this part of it where the view is, is we don't need to take any risk. And the answer is that's just not true. I mean, America is in a very, we've been in a very fortunate state, a very, a state that God has allowed America to be in that most of the world is not in. And so like even with our response to the coronavirus, we caused huge harm to the rest of the world that does not live in the same way as we do. They do not have anywhere near the wealth that we have. And we actually caused great harm to ourselves by our unwillingness to take the moderate risk of living with coronavirus. We've done, you know, harm that will take years to undo culturally. And people are measuring the harm, right? They're starting to say, but the children lost a year and a half of school. Like, for instance, that would be one of the harms that people are measuring. But they're not willing to look at that ahead of time because that still means that you had to accept risk. Our government, because more women vote than men, and our government, especially the Democrats, almost always win the female vote especially single females. The Republicans frequently win married females, and they almost always win males. But the single females win or vote so much more predominantly for Democrats. And the single females, because they don't have a husband that is protecting them from risk, they want the government to protect them from all risk. And so that's what our government is structured to do, because that's how the demographics work for the elections. And so because of that, it creates this huge problem that we're going, let's, let's not take any risks. And there's always risks when you don't take risks because the risks are what you see. It's what you don't see that's actually more dangerous. And when it comes to coronavirus, I actually don't think it was a choice of risk or no risk. It was a which risk are we going to care about? And we're going to care. And, and the, the politicians are saying, oh, we have to do something or else we may not get reelected. We'll right, be looked because, at as the people who didn't do anything. So we'll do something, and if it's damaging five years down the road, not my problem because I got reelected. 
And the issue is, is they were able to pander to a set of people who wanted them to deal with the risk for them. Yeah. As opposed to a group of people which, who said, and they we'll deal with enough. the risk ourselves. I'll make, you know, I'll, I'll deal with the risk at the, at, the fam- at the individual level, at the family level. And that's a very different outlook. And, and it really is a feminization of our society that in our society we say there should not be any risk. That's what OSHA is about. And it's not saying that some of those requirements, I mean, there's, there's a biblical idea of you have to put a parapet around your roof. But instead of going, I should be able to look at a situation and say, is this worth the risk or not? OSHA comes in and says, we will decide whether that's worth the risk or not in the occupation. And so they create all these rules that most people don't follow because they're ridiculous rules, right? You have to wear a hard hat on any construction site. Well, a lot of times you don't need a hard hat on. And they actually restrict things, and they make it harder to see. And it might be more dangerous to have a hard hat on at times. But yet they insist that you have it on because in some case you've mitigated some risk. And because our government is now saying that it's the one that mitigates all risk, we've, we've really emasculated our society because we're saying that men aren't allowed to say, this is a risk I'm willing to choose. But still, in other cases, there's no choice, right? The firefighter. They can't do that for him because guess what? You have to take risks to be a firefighter. You can't be a fighter fighter and not take risks. To, to put together a skyscraper, you have to take risks. You just simply have to. Right. And so they try to mitigate all the risks instead of teaching people how to deal with risks. And the reality is just because women are more risk adverse than men, it doesn't mean that men don't need to learn how. How do you balance the risk? How do you balance the risk reward? Because those are real things that need to be calculated, and the government is trying to say we always get to calculate it, and that's a really dangerous thing. And normally we're not really dealing with life and death issues. It's where the kid's walking out of the door, and the mother's always like, put your coat on. Like, well, and then there's time to fire, and you say, well, actually, let's let him figure out if he needs a coat. Let's let him be cold. He's not going to die. You know? And, you know, there's a bunch of stuff like that where, you know, there's the balance where then, you know, Going out into the blizzard, well, yeah, the mother should, <laughs> mother's advice is good. He needs a coat, or the baby needs a coat, you know. So, you know, there's this balance where you have to be this tall to go out into a blizzard by yourself. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I think the point that you're making, which is a very important point, is that husbands actually need to be involved in the raising of their children, or their children will be completely risk adverse because mother's tendency is to teach that risk adverse. You can't go out without gloves on. What will happen? You could. You know, if the car broke down, then you'd, you know, your hands would get frostbite. Well, probably not. But, you know, that's the tendency is let's secure against any risk. And men, if we're going to actually have a society that actually works, because you have to take risks, is men have to push their children? No, you, you need to take a risk. You need to go out and do things that are hard to do and that, that feels unsafe because this is life. Life has a lot of things in it that are unsafe. And so... Because there's this natural difference, the men have to recognize God's put them in charge for a reason. Because it's very, it's wonderful that that wives want to make a very secure environment, but that doesn't actually allow you to take dominion of the world. Because to take dominion means you take risk. And we've already talked about Ephesians five. We've talked about how the relationship between husband and wife is Christ and the church, and that applies here. Or what we've been talking about is exemplified really in that Christ is. He's the great risk taker. 
in the sense that he came to Earth. <laughs> he didn't take any risk because he no, knew exactly in, what in he was way. getting into. But the, <laughs> but the, I know what you mean. <laughs> the picture that we have is that he gave up everything to take on the form of man and to be humbled, to be like a man, to submit to death, to rise from the grave. He, he's the one who's going out. He's looking at the world. He's saying, I'm going to take this. I'm going to take risk. And he's doing it in order to provide security, in order to, I mean, another word for salvation. But he's, he's saying, here's your hope. Here's your future. Here's how things are going to work out. And they're all going to work out because I'm going to go out and I'm going to take risks for you on your behalf. I mean, and, and part of what that does is the husband teaches his wife to take risks with him and that she doesn't, and that she finds security in trusting her husband, that, that he is not taking risks foolishly, that he is considering things, that he is caring for her, but that, it, that, these, that this risk is worth taking. And what's really important to that is that he bears the brunt of the the failure if you took risk that was bad, right? right? I mean, is that the husband also needs to bear the brunt of the risk. That's how the wife knows she's secure. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have any effect on her. The person who says, honey, we're going to, we're going to quit my job and start a business. I mean, he needs to go if the business fails. Well, now I need to go out there and make more money to, to right. re, you know, to reprovide for the family. But, and so it affects her, but, she also needs to know he'll bear the brunt of the risk. I think there's a scene in The Grapes of Wrath where it's in the Dust Bowl and there's farmers and there's a hailstorm comes through and destroys all the crops. And after the dust settles, they go outside. And the, the scene is the children look at the mothers and the mothers are looking at the husbands and the husbands are looking at the fields. And the husbands, wives are looking at their husbands to see if their husbands are broken. Because if their husbands aren't broken, they're going to be okay. You know, and the husbands are looking at the fields and they're thinking and they're figuring it. The children are looking at the, you know, I mean, it's this picture. The children mm-hmm. are looking at the mothers and the mothers are looking at the fathers. The fathers are looking at the fields and they're figuring and they're thinking and they're thinking. And then the fathers stand up and they say, okay, here's what we're going to go and do. And the women are like, as long as my husband isn't broken, I'm going to be okay because he's going to deal with this risk, which is exactly what you're saying, is he's going to figure out what we're going to do. He's going to pull us through this. And one of the big problems now is there's still the children looking to the mother and the mother looking to the father, but the father's looking at the government. Right. The father doesn't go, what should I do? He goes, how will the government help me? And that, that doesn't provide security. I mean, one of the things that because woman was made for man, that is a really core difference between women and men is that, that women want to be looked at and men want to look. And we want to deny this. But denying this creates huge problems because this is true for teenagers too. And we need to recognize this. And when you don't recognize this, it causes all kinds of problems. And we want to pretend that men and women are the same. Men and women aren't the same. Women dress to be looked at and not just to be looked at by men. But men want to look, young men, old men, they want to look at women. And so like in 1 Peter 3, 3, God doesn't warn men about this. He warns women about this. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Because the natural, since the fall, the natural desire of women is to be looked at. And so women need to fight against that, and they need to to resist that. But that is one of the ways that God created men and women that are different. And, 
and in a good way, right? Because God talks about how how he adorns his bride, how how she is precious in his sight, how like when he talks about Israel, how he dressed her and he clothed her and he gave her a nose ring, and he did all these things so that she was beautiful. So there is this picture that's that's absent of the fall of the husband desiring to look at his wife and the wife desiring her husband to look at her. And so this carries through through society. And this is a basic difference between men and women. And women fight this. Women want to go to, you know, the 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 male equivalent of a I mean where male are stripping, but there's always a lot more female strip shows than there are male strip shows in every culture because there's a lot more men that will pay to look at women than there are women that will pay to look at men. Because this is part of the difference in creation. This is one of the things where the numbers aren't even close, right? I mean, the numbers aren't Not even, even I mean, close. I mean, I mean and, and people want to talk, but they don't even spend that much time on this one because it's so it's so hard to deny. I mean, they'll say things about it, but I'm just, but in the end, I mean, I'm sorry. The, the, the statistics and the data are just kind of out there and in everybody's face. And so, I mean, it's they, usually they just ignore this aspect. I mean, they'll talk about it at certain times, but it's not something that most people are spending that much effort into making a lie about, as opposed to, like, the movies where they fight, you know, the, the, the little wispy girl is fighting the big guy and pretending like she can beat him. This one is one that everybody knows, but they just still want to pretend like it's not true. Well, I mean, to sell tickets, they can't ignore it otherwise. Because right. it's so ingrained that they need to follow that rule to sell right. tickets. If they spent as much money marketing to women in, in the same way and they only had – yeah, I mean, if they – they're not going to – if they ran all the effort and put on as many shows for women, they'd lose money. The amount of clothes that are worn between the superheroes, male and female, is pretty obvious difference. Yep. Right? Because – Everybody knows this is what sells tickets. And so people pretend like they're not going to look at the beautiful woman in tight clothes. It's just simply is not true. That is what drives the tickets. <laughs> a few years ago, one of the comic artists drew the major – he drew some of the major uh, superheroes in female poses. Because <laughs> he, he took – I mean, he took like – here's boom, boom, you know, iconic male poses, iconic female poses. And he looked at it across the board and he said and, – and it looked – absolutely ridiculous you know what i mean it was just you know what i mean it was the way they were standing it made no everything but you know they were standing to like so you could see the front and the side and the you know what i mean and like it was this i mean and it was one of the most hilarious things because you could see people going this is all about sexism and this but everybody also went duh yeah <laughs> i mean they said you know it was Quit pretending like this. You know, we all know this is the case. This is why it exists. And so it was a really interesting just kind of study with it because they all saw it. They all recognized it. And they said, yep, that's what we want. Let's get straight back to business. Nobody wants to disrupt this because this is what sells. And there's a reason not to disrupt it, too, which is because it's already, you know, a large part of this topic is already a, a perversion of how it's supposed to be. Right. You know, so, it, you know, the the fact that the movies and comics and all this stuff are designed to appeal to lust isn't, well, what a natural thing. That's already, that's already not right. Yep. I mean, and it means men will make excuses to look. You know what I mean? Men will right. make excuses to justify looking. Men will make excuses to say, this is why it's okay for me to see this. This is why it's okay for my children to see this. I mean, you know, you pretend like the movie isn't going to sell this sort of thing in it. And you know it is. And I mean, because it is trying to appeal to men, it will sell those things. And if you sit there and act like this is not true, you're just lying to yourself. And this is why lies are so appealing.
because you can believe a falsehood at the same time as you're fulfilling your lust with that lie. And so, I mean, it's a it's a and, very important thing. Yeah, when you look at Hollywood where women go, you know, after the age of 40, you just can't get roles. Well, guess what? Everybody knows this is true, right? right? I mean, it's just the reality. And so they recognize this is how you sell tickets and it's a business and, and to pretend like it's any other way, it's just not true. And you do see in scripture where, you know, like Absalom. Now in Israel, there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head at the end of every year, he cut it because it was heavy on him. When he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels, according to the king's standard. Here's somebody who was trying to be looked at. He was trying to attract attention. And as a male, and, and he's, a, he's a bad figure. He's an evil figure in the Bible, right? I mean, and so God is making a distinction that the woman who's doing that, if she's focused on that instead of having a meek and submissive spirit, that's not pleasing in the sight of God. But the woman inherently in doing that is not evil. But when you see the pictures of men doing that, it is a picture of an evil man. But then you contrast, right, Job, who was a righteous man. And what does he say? He said, I've made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? He goes, I recognize my desire is to look. And so because of that, I need to constrain my desire because otherwise I will look. Right. And so we just should not deny the reality of the difference between men and women. Women desire to be looked at and men desire to look at them, which creates a lot of well, it creates marriage, first of all, so it's not all bad, but it creates also adultery and all these other things that are driven off that same thing because of the fall. There's a lot of fathers who let their daughters dress in ways that are shameful, and they should know a lot better. They understand what men are like, and they don't leave their home, and they don't leave an authority. And you know, But I mean? a lot They're, of it is that they won't admit to themselves who they are. Right. Oh, no. I, I, that's what I was going to say is we have this attitude that there's this – intrinsic innate thing in a man that says he can't look at his daughter and lust after her. And the truth is, is the way you preserve that is by the man laboring to preserve it. I mean, is that you, and I was even thinking though, that the man goes, Oh, I don't look at women to lust after them. So nobody's going to look at my daughter to lust after him when he's lying to himself and not constraining himself. Or that it's a virtue appreciating, you know, versus right. There can be that is, you know, sure. not a good, not, not you can go window thing. shopping as long as you don't buy. Right. And so if other people are going window shopping, why don't you let your daughter be window shopped? Another difference between men and women is, is submissiveness versus strength. And I mean, you can see this in the creation order and you can see it in the, in the curse as well, that God says you were made to submit to your husband and there's going to be a desire on your part not to submit to him in one way, but you're also, but he's, but God isn't going the the desire and the attitude of being willing to submit is gone. He's just saying there's something that's fighting against it. And I think there's just part of it where we act like women aren't willing to, don't have a desire to submit to their husbands, and they do, to submit to men. There is a real part of it where, I mean, and this is why we, we talk about, like, often you'll see a woman go get a job. Like, she'll, I'm not going to submit to my husband at home, and she'll go and get a job, and she'll become an executive assistant to someone who she does look at, and she does, he's strong and he's powerful, and she, and she enjoys obeying him. She enjoys doing the things he wants her to do, and she enjoys meeting his needs in that setting and fulfilling those things. Sometimes it causes huge problems because it goes beyond those things, but she finds a real pleasure in that. I mean, there is a part of where God has made women with a desire to submit to men and and again if you take if 
you take the professions that women choose and the professions that men choose, I mean, they're different. And part of it is exactly like what you said. Most men are not too satisfied with being an executive assistant unless they think that they're going to become the executive. Right. Right. They're looking at it as a stepping stone. While a woman can do it for 40 years and be very satisfied with it. And the choices of professions are dramatically different between men and women because in part of it is the nature that, that man was made or woman was made for man and man was not made for woman. And so the choice of professions is reflected in that. And God is saying that this is good and that they should embrace this and they shouldn't, they shouldn't, I mean, not to submit to any man, they should submit to their own husband to be clear. But, but that part that is fallen that caused them to desire the position of their husband, that's, that is sin, but it doesn't mean that the rest of it was eliminated. And you can see that very obviously, very obviously in the professions that women choose versus the professions that men choose. Right. And I mean, and there's, and the, on the other side, God made men to be in a position where, like and you said, a woman should submit to her husband. She should submit to her husband or her father. You know, I mean, those are the two people in our life. That, I mean, the normative view that God has a woman submitting to is she either submitting to her father or she's submitting to her husband. And this is not, and, and God made men to be in that position where they were to have the strength to lead a woman who was submitting to them. And God holds this up as the example, right, in Second Peter 3, 5, and 6. For in this manner in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. This is because this is how God made them. They are to adorn themselves with that. They are supposed to embrace how they were created and what they were created to be. And then you draw that as a contrast with men when, when God says, here's the men that you should look up to. Like an example would be David's mighty men. In 2 Samuel 23, 8 through 10, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joshab, Basha, Beth, the Tachmanite, chief among the captains. He was called Adino, the Esnite, because he had killed 800 men at one time. And after him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Hohite, one of the three mighty men with David, when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. And the men of Israel had retreated. He arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand stuck to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to plunder. I mean, the men that are held up, (laughs) this isn't Sarah submitted to Abraham, and so this is whose daughter you are. It's these are what mighty men look like, right? You see the picture of who God's saying is the example that you look towards for men is very different than the example that you look towards towards women. For women, because God made men and women different, and you're not just, I mean, you're not saying Abraham wasn't that type of person. Because when when Lot and them are captured and taken off, Abraham and the men and his, <laughs> the men that he has there, they go and they destroy the 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 Chater Laomer and and bring back the you know the king of Sodom and Lot and all the spoil that they had captured. So I mean, Abraham falls into that that same category. He's not this you know he's not just good with numbers and and livestock. Right. You know, I mean, he's. He's a, he is a very capable, mighty man as well. And, and when you look at this and you put this in the perspective that the Old Testament is very much a parable, there's this part where it doesn't mean that every single man has to be a man of physical warfare, but that men have to be competent and capable, and they can't be, they can't be weak. And they have to be willing to go into battle, and they have to right. really fight the battle. And maybe 
their strength doesn't need to be that they can hold a sword and squeeze it hard enough so that the blood causes, you know, the gore causes them to not be able to remove their hand. It's not, but is there a difference between that and going and talking to, you know, we did an episode recently on Mormons. Is that different than going into a group of Mormons and saying you are idolaters, that you hate God? No, that's the same thing. It's in a different context, but that's what we're supposed to be doing when we wield the sword. We need to be willing to do that, and that's what a mighty man looks like spiritually. And this is what God is saying. You look towards men to do that, but the woman, that's not what you look to and say, this is what is pleasing in the eyes of God. What's pleasing in the eyes of God is that she's submissive towards to her own husband. I'm not sure I'm totally comfortable with the distinction between submissiveness and strength as much as... It's different kinds of strength. They're different expressions sure. of strength. Submissiveness and leadership may be a different. Well, yeah, I mean, you, but this you isn't at, really leadership either. When you look at David's mighty men, that's fair. You look at say you, you you look at the way that Sarah is submissive to Abraham, and you say that's a really strong woman. She's somebody who's being asked to take some risks by her husband and is willing to do that. She's being submissive there. She's calling him Lord, and you know she's doing good without terror. Well, doing good without terror. I mean, that is that is a form of strength. That's an right. expression of strength. But it's indirect. You know, we, we, think of, we think of Esther doing very risky, strong things when she has to go in and make her appeals to the king and have these banquets and feasts. But it's, it's much more indirect than these guys who are going out and David's mighty men fighting with, you know, and won't come off the sword. But it's not, it's not strength versus... Submissiveness. It depends on the def. It depends on whether you're t- on the scope of strength that you're talking about. If you're talking about strength of character, no, they're both strength. But it is a different yeah. kind of strength and strength of character rather than than strength of being willing to go in and exercise power in a battle. And so, yes, I agree that there is a different form of strength, but I do think it's a different form of strength. And that's why I'm even calling yeah. it leadership because I actually because I understand it's not leadership in the it's not leadership in the necessary of being a specific captain or a specific officer, but in every single one of these examples, they go in, they win a victory, and the people come in and follow after them, and they set the stage for the people to follow after them. And so there's this part of it where, I mean, that is what leadership is in a way, is that you go and that they're going in front and they're fighting to make a way. And that, I mean, but that, I mean, it, it's complicated concepts in the sense sure. that Elijah, when he fights the 300 prophets of Baal or 600 prophets of Baal, nobody follows after him. He runs. What the right term is, isn't necessarily that important. It's to make sure that the concept is given because the person who fights by themselves and doesn't have anybody follow them, they're still, I mean, there's mighty men that do that. Noah would be an example where basically nobody follows him, but he preaches for 120 years. He was very strong, and he was strong in, you know, maybe dominion taking is the right term, but he was very strong in doing that, even though nobody followed him. So it's not inherently leadership either. It- I think one of the other, other big differences that you see, and we've kind of alluded to it probably a few times already, um, which is that there's differences in the common or very common sins between the men and the women, uh, where women also often are going to fall subject to fear and being consumed with fear of uh, things of the world, not fear of God. Uh, and, and the men, on the other hand, will be 
um, inclined to apathy, inclined to laziness, inclined to not take the responsibility and leadership that they that they should have. And those are those are sins. Those are perversions of uh, of righteous living. But they also are are coming from the way that we're made and the way that sin has corrupted the natures that God gave us. Right. When you look at at women, part of the re- the way that the curse that their desire will be for their husband plays itself out is is they have this this nature to fear things that they can't trust their husband. And because they have this nature to fear things, they end up trying to take the place of their husband. Like even in a, a church where we very openly teach that the husbands are the head of the wife, the number of women that have come in while I've been a pastor at very church, various churches or at two churches where the wife comes in and says, yes, I want my husband to lead. Yes, I want my husband to lead. And then he starts to lead and they immediately go, I don't want him to lead that way. And they get filled with fear because he, they want, they want to be submissive, but they want to submit to somebody who's doing what they want them to do. Otherwise they're filled with fear. And so this, this is that fear is what drives their desire to be for their husband, for their desire to have the role of their husband to be in control of things. And so women really need to fight against, against fear because that is a manifestation of the curse. And often men aren't afraid of the things that women are afraid of, and they can be very apathetic. They can be both, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? They can, they can treat the things that their wife fears as if they don't matter and not care about those sort of things because they're really not threats to them at all maybe. You know what I mean? There may be things that really don't – they see no threat whatsoever in the thing that their wife fears. And there can be times where, you know I mean, it can be very easy to not care about something that's not a threat to you personally. Or you, you go, yeah, I get fired. I'll go find another job. And, and she's going, how will the children be provided for? And – you actually need to walk your wife through that right. and go, look, here's my skill set. I can find something else. I can always go flip hamburgers at McDonald's. You know, these are the options so that you mitigate her fear. Right. Because a lot of times men just mitigate the fear without even thinking about it very much. Right. Because all of their training is about mitigating fear. Right. I mean, you know because I mean? when you're wrestling, you go, well, you know, if I do this, he could grab me this way and that could really hurt. But I'll take that risk because then maybe I can pin him, you know, and even it goes back to that wrestling is that there is this, this management of risk versus fear and everything else that you, that you just learn to deal with and women don't learn to deal with it the same way. And they're not made to deal with it the same way. that this discussion about these particular sins is probably running on the same track as the discussion we had much earlier where we were talking about just the, the perspective that men and women have where women have a short term perspective where they're, we're looking at the where's the next meal coming from, whereas the man has the long-term perspective of are the crops going to come in. And and because of that, you know, a man, a man could – it's much easier to be apathetic. Like, ah, you know, things are going to work out eventually. And I don't have to I don't have to deal with these immediate things, whereas the woman's perspective is immediate things. And so we have to deal with the immediate things. That, you know, I can't take a long-term view because I have immediate problems to deal with and – and this is why you see so many of the commands in Ephesians about loving your wife as your own body, loving your wife as yourself, because there's this part of it where he's saying you're going to have this tendency. You, her fears by nature aren't going to be your fears. Her concerns, the way you care for her by nature isn't going to really care for her if you're not careful. It's going to 
feel like you don't care for her. And so you have to actually change the way you think about what your body is and the way what her body is and the way your cares are and your concerns are and what her concerns are. Like you said, to walk either to walk her through them, to do to do those things so that because for you, it's second nature, just like for her putting the meals on the table has been carrying. You know, what I mean, the, the things right. that you partake of that are second nature that she does that that she doesn't think that much about how much that actually does mean to you, because it does. It right. means a great deal. And so it's these, well, you see the commands in Scripture. There's so much tied to God saying, I made you to be different, but don't let your differences harm one another. This is how you fight so those differences don't cause greater pain. And that the, even the differences become even more glorifying because you're mitigating against the sin that could so easily rise from those differences. That sounds like the long way of saying what Peter said when he says, live with your wives in an understanding way. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> that was a really clunky and horrible way of saying something that Peter said rather elegantly, Charles. <laughs> and, and when you look at wives, you know, husbands need to mitigate the fear that their wives have, and wives need to mitigate the apathy that their husbands have. And the way that they mitigate the apathy is what it says in First Peter 3, starting at one, verse 1, is that the way they do it is by being silent and letting their husband, you don't go out and say, well, if he won't do it, I'm going to go do it, right? That's not the way that you deal with his apathy. The way that you deal with his apathy is if he won't obey the word, you win him with your meek and submissive spirit, and you put the responsibility back on him. And the the tendency of women, because they're afraid, is to say, well, if he's not going to do it, I'll do it. And God says, no, put it back on him. Put the onus on him to do it. Because God did give us these very different different propensities towards sin, and we're supposed to be balancing this, and we're both supposed to be dealing with the other, with our spouse's sin. And God gives us means to deal with the spouse's sin. And a wife just tends to go, well, if he's not going to do it, I'll do it. Well, that's not dealing with his sin. And a husband tends to go, well, she's afraid of that, but that doesn't really mean anything, so I'm not going to do anything. Instead of each of us dealing with our spouse in such a way that we we turn them from the sin that is going to be part of their nature. We recently had a couple in our church who are just getting married here in a couple of days, and one of the, the women were tasked with writing something to the, the bride-to-be about marriage and my wife was kind of asking me and she she hates writing things like this and stuff like that but she was like trying to ask for something and I said at least one of the things you can tell her is don't nag and I told her that one of the most things that I value the most about my wife is I mean there are times where she will tell me this is causing pain I think this is going to pinch here and this is pinching here but I don't remember any time in my our marriage where she has nagged me she, and, and she's basically said, there's a cost here. You're bearing this cost. You need to be aware of it. And then she expected me to be a man. Mm-hmm. And it's terrifying. And but also incredible. There were times where I would test her. I would sit there and I would sit there going, oh, she's going to have to say something about that. And I would just, I would be amazed. And her willingness to not nag me put all the more pressure on me to deal with it. Because you are joined, mm-hmm. you are, and and you could. There's no desire to do harm to your wife, but nagging can cause you. To, to, it gives you an excuse to be apathetic. It does. 
And, and we shouldn't give our wives excuses to be fearful for, by ignoring their fear. And we shouldn't, and wives shouldn't give their husbands an excuse to be apathetic by nagging them. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it's amazing how, how horribly petty we can be. So as we've talked about the difference between men and women, we should just remember this is part of God's glorious plan. He did this, and he made men and women different so that we see his complexity, that we see his glory in both men and women being made in the image of God. And he made us different because neither of us are God. Neither of us have the expanse of God. And he made us different so we could see the wonder and the marvel of his plan of creation. Let's not ignore it and dismiss it like the world does. Instead, let's embrace it so that we can understand God better. Thanks for joining us. This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching.